Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. Being an upland hunter in the south nowadays unfortunately means a lot of travel to try and find birds for my dogs. This means it's even more important that my map scouting is reliable to justify the effort. This is where Onyx comes in. I can honestly say that Onyx directly impacts the level of success I find on my trips. Whether it's the private versus public land boundaries, the expanding number of unique layers and features by state, or the 3D mapping capabilities, my initial step in planning my hunting trip starts with Onyx. To know where you're going, you have to first know where you stand. Check out Onyx Hunt Maps and use code G. GDIY20 at checkout to save 20%. We still have those moments, and I've been breeding and training dogs for 25 plus years. And I still look at this litter every day, and I'm like, God, man, I, I really like these two, but am I, ma- am I making the right choice right now? These are two potentials for RGK and stuff like that. At, at one, just don't be scared about it. One thing we all love to do with our dogs is hit the road and go on new adventures. In order for that to happen, we have to be able to safely and efficiently travel with our dogs. Dakota 283 is dedicated to building unparalleled pet protection and tailgate lifestyle products for you and your best friends. Their one-piece roto-molded kennels have many options such as the Hero Series for military-grade crates, T1 low-profile kennels that will fit truck beds with tonneau covers, and their most popular G3 Series that's available in any size you'll need. Dakota not only offers many different sizes and styles of kennels, they also offer products and accessories to help with food and water transport, truck bed storage, and even grooming stations. Have a new puppy and only want to buy one kennel instead of buying multiple ones as they grow? Look at the Forever Kennel Insert Divider that gives you the ability to buy a kennel now and adjust the size inside as needed. No matter what you need to get you on your next adventure with your dog, Dakota has it for you. Check them out now at Dakota283.com. Your new 283 lifestyle is just one click and free shipping away. All right, everybody, we are back with another week of GDIY, and Joe has made it back to civilization. Joe, how was the drive back from Texas yesterday, buddy? Wasn't that bad, but I sure picked a bad time to go to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> You're there, stuck there for what, two weeks? I think you were just pl- planning for like a half a week or something. <laughs> we, we, we were like about a week. Um, and then uh, the snowocalypse happened in, in Dallas. So. <laughs> So, did you even get get a chance to go quail hunting at all or anything like you're hoping? No. <laughs> oh wow. We uh we we got iced in. Um so that wasn't even really the bad part of it, but um we were going to meet up with some friends. Um and then uh, my father-in-law's, you know, kind of dog trainer, hunting partner and we all kind of got iced in. Um and then luckily in, you know, perfect uh Texas fashion, uh, one of the guys we were hunting and he was like, yeah, my, um, my cousin's got, um, like a 3000 acre ranch <laughs> that we can go and just hang out. It does. It probably doesn't have any birds, but you know, if we can kind of run the dogs and you can tell us what we need to do to get birds. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so yeah, we, um, we went in, it was kind of a West Texas ranch, um, owned by, um, a very wealthy, um, uh, guy named Roberto. <laughs> All right. And now Roberto, uh, Roberto wants to learn how to, uh, 
you know, raise quail and, and, and kind of get them on his property and everything like that. He's all in, man. Well, it sounds like a, a, a good contact for you to really buddy up to so that we can go to Texas, uh, preferably not when the once a generation snowstorm hits Texas and shuts everything down and rolling blackouts and all that. But, uh, yeah, m- maybe around the, the snow apocalypse or whatever the heck it is you called it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't think we have to worry about that one for the next couple of years. And then, you know, Nashville got a, I mean, I think some people, you know, everywhere else in the country will think that, you know, Nashville, a bunch of wimps on, on what we got, but um, it didn't make sense for as soon as we were kind of like a, it got a little bit better in Dallas. I was like, well, I'm not going to go to Nashville where it's all <laughs> iced and snowed too. So I well, guess we're going to hang out a little while. It's funny. All the Northerners are laughing at the Southerners down here for not being able to deal with snow. And I think I, I saw something online the other day. Somebody was like, yeah, all you Northerners laugh at us because we don't know how to drive in snow, but you know, come talk to us when y'all win football championships or something yeah. <laughs> like I, I'm like, eh, it's not, not exactly the same, but I get, I, I get the sentiment. You gotta, you gotta grasp at straws there. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I saw a meme and it was like, don't mess with Texas unless you're snow. Then you can totally <laughs> screw with Texas. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, you know, we, we we can talk about the uh, apocalypse all night long, but uh, you know, we kind of have a long episode this this week. So let's go ahead and get to it. We have uh, Scott Caldwell joins us again and friend, uh, friend we, of the podcast. <laughs> absolutely. So uh, we just kind of close out this puppy series. You know, the past four or five episodes, it, it, we've kind of covered everything from picking your breed, breeder, uh, just everything. You, you know, it, anything that a newbie or somebody planning a uh, their next dog needs to know about their puppy. But there, there were little holes here and there on each episode that we didn't either touch on or just didn't have time. And, you know, maybe they were topics that just didn't really warrant a full episode by itself. So uh, me and Scott come on and we really just kind of go down the line and touch on it. And a lot of it was questions from listeners and listener feedback that we went down. Uh, so it covers a lot of ground on this one and, and I think everybody's going to enjoy it because, uh, th- there's a few hot topic, uh, issues in this one. So, uh, be sure to, you know, stay tuned, listen to it. it it's, it's a long one, but, uh, hope you guys enjoy it. Yeah. Well, Nick, on that note, um, you know, we kind of talked about doing our, uh, our, our reviews, reading some reviews and then, um, if I actually read your review, we're going to get you, uh, <laughs> a, a sticker. And I've, yep. I've got one. Yep. Uh, this one's short and sweet. Um, it's always weird picking these uh, reviews because I don't want to pick one that, I mean, I will pick one, but it's always weird saying like, you guys are the best podcast ever. <laughs> hey, if it's the <laughs> truth, it's the truth. It's the know? truth, man. <laughs> uh, but I like this just because um, uh, of, of, of the words he used. Okay. Um, this one is from uh, Public Land Hunter Guy. And he says, some good fellers, great content, great hosts, lots of extremely helpful info for someone wanting to get into gun dogs like myself. So public land hunter guy, I don't even know if you have a dog, <laughs> but I'm glad even if you don't have a dog, you're listening to the podcast. This was all the way in June 2nd. So maybe you have a dog now. If you do, uh-huh. let us know. Dude, <laughs> you went way the heck back there. <laughs> well, yeah, just reach out to us, public land hunter guy, uh, and, we'll, and we'll shoot you a sticker. I, I know George, the review, first review you read, he uh, he reached out and he just, I got his sticker in the mail uh, the other day. Uh, so, yeah, you know, k- keep them coming and hopefully 
Joe, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of working on that, that merchandise. So hopefully here in a little while, we'll have something a little bit better than just stickers to offer up everybody. Yep, exactly. Well, Nick, do you got a, a tip of the week or are we, uh, for going that? I, I have a quick one. Uh, all right. All right. This is actually, I got some listener feedback, uh, last week. For all the way from Scotland. Whoa. Uh, yeah, we had Georgina Bu- uh, Buchan. Buchan? Uh, I'm not sure how that's pronounced. but uh, I, I, I don't want to have to bleep that out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why you would. But yeah, they uh, Georgina, they um, reached out and just kind of gave another good mindset tip, general mindset tip when you're going out and training your dog and uh, said... Always work at the pace of your dog. We have had a dog almost fully trained in the first year, but then we've also had another dog not trained until three years old. And so it's just a good reminder. Every dog goes at its own pace. It, you know, you can sit there and you ha- you can have the greatest method and routine with your dogs and dress right, dress everything. You can do multiple dogs the same exact way. And one dog's going to excel at certain things and another dog's not. And, you know, that doesn't mean that the, the slower dog is a worse dog. You might get done by the time they're three or four and it'd be the best dog you've ever had. But it's just the importance of being able to read your dog and go at the pace of your dog. And then that way you're, you're, you're not going too fast too soon. Yeah. It's great advice. All right. So, so yeah, Joe, glad you made it back. Uh, sorry that, uh, we did a, such a long episode and we couldn't uh, visit a little bit more and sorry you couldn't get any quail hunting in, but, uh, you know, go, go listen to this episode and, uh, you know, welcome back to Tennessee, buddy. Hey, well, we got some babies to take care of, so we'll end it right now. <laughs> yep. All right, guys. Well, uh, we'll check back next week. Appreciate it. Thanks as always for listening and, uh, check us out on all the social media and leave those reviews and, uh, we appreciate the support. Picture this. You just finished a long day's hunt or a long day in the training field grooming your next champion. You've run through your entire string of dogs in anticipation for the next fall. You think the day's over. It's not, though. Your day's not over until you let that ugly dog hunt. No hunting or training session is complete without capping it off with one of the spirits from Ugly Dog Distillery. They're Michigan-raised and purebred handcrafted spirits. They have everything you need from vodka and gin to your more traditional after-hunt choice Kentucky bourbon. Head on over to UglyDogDistillery.com to check availability within your state. And if you have an upcoming event that's alcohol-friendly, then be sure to reach out to us and see if we can add another Ugly Dog to the lineup. We'll tell you right now, we aren't much on flavored whiskeys, but you have to try their peanut butter whiskey. Unlike other peanut butter whiskeys out there, Ugly Dogs is made with real Kentucky bourbon and not just grain alcohol with syrup. So after your next hunt or a long day of testing and you're trying to decide what to drink, reach for the bottle with Ruger, the German wire hair pointer on it. It was handcrafted by people just like us, dog people. Every adventure starts somewhere. Make sure yours includes an ugly dog at your side. Explore responsibly. All right, everybody. We are joined once again with the GDIY staple now and your uh, friendly neighborhood dog trainer, Scott. Scott, how you doing, man? I'm good. I'm one. I'm waiting for the the official invite to be an official GDIY member. Not like not like a podcaster guy, but like <laughs> an actual GDIY member. Right now, we, you're a GDIY endorsed trainer. Whatever the heck that means and whatever it's worth, you're a GDIY endorsed trainer. How about that? I'll take it. I'll take it every day. Yep. Uh, yep. So, uh, you know, 
you're kind of the perfect target for me to kind of wrap this, uh, what I've been calling puppy series up. We've kind of covered a lot of ground, but throughout, throughout the last few weeks and all these episodes, there's been a few questions or topics here and there that, uh, I'll get asked or think of that. Like, Oh man, I wish we hit on that. Uh, but maybe they didn't warrant a full on episode by itself. So I, I wanted to get you on. Let's talk about a, a bunch of different topics, kind of put a nice little bow wrapped on the top of this puppy series and, uh, let's, you know, move let's on. wrap it up. Just, yeah. Yeah. Yep, wrap yep. it up. Just let's wrap it, wrap it up and then pull everybody together. And hopefully we can answer as many of the questions in people's heads and, and get everybody on the, on the right track going into the spring and summer. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, uh, let's go ahead. Let's start with a couple, uh, topics on puppy selection. You know, last week we, we kind of, I dove in with, uh, Curlander about male versus female. Obviously right. there's a lot more debates and considerations when picking a puppy. Uh, and th- there are two main ones that I think we can touch on that you hear a lot of, of debate or opinions about. And, uh, the first one that I'd like to touch on the benefits, the drawbacks, what you like and dislike about each one is the size of the dog, right? Right. You need a large dog, small dog, medium dog. What are the benefits and what are the drawbacks of each one? Oh, so you want Scott's perspective on this. So, all right. It, it, well, we, 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 yeah, we're going to debate it, both of us. <laughs> all right. Yeah, because I know we have, even though we both own technically German short hair pointers, there's a profound difference between Rachel and Falcon (laughs) (laughs) by about 50. Falco's a great Dane and Rachel's a, yeah, Rachel's a pocket rocket and Falco's a great Dane. So (laughs) about 50 pounds and 20 inches at least. (laughs) So here's the way I look at it. When you, it, it, it ties back to, it, this actually ties back to a couple of the first episodes um, with the Carters and stuff like that is, you know, when you're talking about puppy size or dog selection on size, you really got to ask yourself the overall purpose of what you're doing with that dog. And the, prof- you know, the most profound part of your hunting that you're going to be doing with that dog, that should answer the question as far as breed and, and the size of that breed. So, you know, you're a guy that, hunts a lot out of a you know standing kayak somewhere in the south carolina marshes and flooded timber and stuff and you want a boykin spaniel to sit on the back of the kayak with you great you know um but when it comes down to your specific breed and we just touched upon it uh with just the differences between uh the gsps um GSPs can range from the Americanized versions from about, oh, anywhere from about 45 pounds and, you know, 21 inches at the, at the shoulder to the German bred ones, which are obviously much larger. Falco's even large for the German system, but I mean, you know, they could, they could range all the way up into the 70 pound range and, and stuff. So really the biggest question is to ask yourself, what what are you doing what is your purpose for the dog obviously if you're if you're hunting a little more out west if you're hunting more open ground um you kind of want a dog that moves and ranges a little bit better 
Um, if you're hunting uh, grouse and grouse woods, tight grouse woods, we'll even say eastern North Carolina or eastern Tennessee, western North Carolina, you know, maybe you want something uh, a little bit smaller that can fit through the laurel and stuff like that. If you're a woodcock hunter, you know, we all know what woodcock habitat looks like, you know, and do you want a, a big, burly, hairy dog that, that's going to pick up a bunch of you know, be a Velcro dog and pick up briars and burrs and everything else. But that coat also provides a level of protection against a lot of that stuff as well. So, oh yeah, well, we're, we're going to get into the coat here in a minute. Uh, that that's the second one that we're going to touch on, but to, to kind of wrap up the, the size, you know, the purpose is obviously the first thing to consider. Like you were saying, are you a kayak hunter? Uh, what are you going to be hunting with this dog? Uh, right. You know, that there are benefits to being small and large. If you're a pheasant hunter and you hunt a lot of cattail sl- slews, a bigger dog that can bust through some of those cattails. Right. I, I, I've seen it to where they can dust some of these smaller dogs. But then, you, like you said, you go into the grouse woods or woodcock woods and, uh, you know, these little pocket rockets can just cover twice the ground almost, it seems like, because they're just sh- shooting underneath the cover and in between right. uh, they're, they're finding the little pockets and holes. Uh, right. but just living with the dog too, you know, you, ha- yeah. you have to consider living inside the house with the dog, the traveling with yep. the dog, even the cost and maintenance of the dog, you know, medicine, dog foods, so on and so forth. If you, if you like the smaller dogs, you can actually save a, a lot on that. And I'm not sitting here trying to convince everybody to get a smaller dog because that's what I have. Um, don't get a smaller I came dog to appreciate all <laughs> <laughs> I, I came to appreciate the smaller or medium dogs uh, kind of by accident. You know, when I first got got my dogs, I was picturing the larger short hair. And then it just it was the right fit. I ended up with the smaller short hair. And I'm like, man, this is kind of nice. And I've just kind of learned to appreciate the benefits that it comes with. But like I said, I have been in North Dakota hunting cattail sloughs or I have been duck hunting on some ice to where that's that bigger, stronger dog would come in handy. Right. And, and that's the big thing is, you know, Rachel and Lucy do great for you. They, they, they are perfect as far as small house, small home, small situation type dogs. And, and they fit into that role really nicely. Um, you know, really, if you, depending on your situation, your home situation, a large dog, if you only are going to own a single dog might not be a concern for you. You know, um, you know, you're a multi-dog family and a multi-dog home. Uh, you've got three dogs, one of them being Crockett, who's a little bit larger and stuff like that anyway. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, having three dogs in the house and a small house, um, suits your lifestyle. Uh, you know, somebody that lives in a town home or an apartment or, or a smaller home, or might not have the room for that dog to run, you know, uh, 65 pound short hair might not be that big of an issue because if it's their only dog, you know, it's just yep. one dog, you know, and I think that really plays yep. into it as well. You know, not saying that if you, you know, you own a, a large dog and you're looking to get your second dog, oh yeah, I need to get a small dog because that's what Scott and Nick said. No, 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 no. We're saying, <laughs> you know, make sure that you're picking a dog that's going to suit your lifestyle, your, your, your budget, your, um, your hunting lifestyle and, and don't shy away from a small dog or a big dog for that matter. You know, yeah. just, just kind of match it up and, and, and 
it's like we've talked about the entire series is just do your research, do your homework and really think hard about what you're trying to accomplish at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. And and I want to touch on real quick when I just mentioned that a smaller dog will save you money on dog food and medication. Let's be honest. You're not going to be able to retire because you bought a dog that's 30 pounds lighter than the other one. Right. No. It's, it's a very no. minuscule saving. So don't, don't take it to the bank. Like go, don't try and go justify it to your wife. Like I can get a dog now because if I get a smaller one, it's more affordable. Like it's, that, yeah. that's not how it works. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so uh, let's go ahead and move on to the coat that you can, kind of touched on you know that there are a lot of people with uh some really deep opinions on on the matter because some people just hate combing their dogs and getting burrs out of their hair like with a passion so you know typically you got you got have your long coat dog you have your short coat dog and then you have your wire hair dogs uh so briefly let's you know let's kind of go over it a lot of it is kind of common sense but maybe somebody first getting into this and hasn't really been hunting a lot and seen seen different dogs in the field they may not really understand what they're getting into one way or the other right right so i mean the the coat situation uh, it, it is important to kind of match your i don't say match your 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 style, your hunting style, your game to your coat. I mean, most, most areas that we hunt nowadays in the U S um, you know, the, the cover that we hunt in, it's not going to matter if it's a short coated dog, long hair coated dog, a wiry coated dog. Um, they all should fare pretty well through it. It's just a matter of at the end of the day, how much grooming you want to do while you're sitting on the back porch, drinking a bourbon. Um, you know, there, you're right. going to have, you're going to have grooming with a longer hair dog. What I think most people need to really pay attention to though is coat quality. And what I mean by that is regardless of breed of dog, regardless of coat style, you know, either a a short haired dog, a long haired dog, or, you know, a wire haired dog. The biggest thing you have to pay attention to is, is is it to what that breed standard says? You know, does it have the proper harshness to it? And and what that means is 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 the coat kind of crinkly feeling. You know, if you've ever taken like a um, piece of braided fishing line, you know, braided fishing line, and you you go to crinkle it up, uh, it kind of holds shape a little bit. But then when you take a piece of monofilament and you do it, and it kind of pops back to place. Think of it along those lines. A softer coat is going to kind of crinkle and stay you know, crinkled up, a harsher coat is going to actually kind of pop back into what it was more or less. Uh, harsher coats tend to, uh, shed water a little bit better. Um, so you you don't end up with a dog that's basically a sponge, you know, when you're, when you're doing (laughs) water work, um, and which lends itself to, you know, when you depended on what you're doing for hunting, if you're a big duck hunting guy, and you're doing, you know, a lot of cold water duck hunting and you're hunting either the Northeast or anywhere down the Atlantic flyway or the mid Atlantic flyway, you know, you might want a dog that's got a heavier, harsher coat that's going to support your, 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 your daily hunt. You really don't probably want to go get like a setter that has a really soft coat that basically acts like a sponge and, and that dog jumps in and out of the water one time and it doesn't matter how many times it shakes, it's still just soaked. It's just wet, you know? Uh, the other thing with the, the quality 
it's really about coverage too. I think a lot of people don't pay attention to this. Uh, anybody within NAVDA and looks at and has been to a NAVDA event, or if you're a NAVDA officiating judge or apprentice or something, you should know one of the biggest things we do look at, and I'm not sure most handlers understand that is, is coverage. And the coverage is really not the top of the top of the dog. It, it's not like I can peel the fur back on the top and be like, wow, look how thick that coat is. The coverage is actually kind of more on the bottom of the dog. Does the dog have really yeah. significant, you know, coverage in the armpits or is it bald? Does the dog have really good coverage on the bottom side, on the stomach? Does it have hair on its stomach or is it completely bald? Is the hair on the chest? Yeah, it's there. But as soon as it gets wet, it's like transparent. You can see right through the skin. That's if you think about it, that's that's that dog's coat of armor. That's the part of the dogs that are going to come into contact with brush, grass, whatever, all the time. And if you've got a dog that has poor coverage down there, um, then you're going to always have a dog that's going to have nick scrapes and other things, possibilities of, you know, getting injured or, or catching an infection because, you know, it gets a foxtail that goes in and keeps migrating through the dog and, and stuff like that. Yeah. And that, and that's also the density of coat and the thickness that that is how, when, whenever somebody tells you that a short hair, uh, can hunt the cold weather, uh, if you get it from the right breeder in the right line, that's, that's where it kind of comes in at. Because again, right. once again, your dogs, your short hairs and my short hair, it's a completely different world. Rachel, her coat density, especially on her stomach and chest sucks. And there's a reason why I can go out. All, all year long when it's warm weather and summer and right. do these duck searches and duck drills and she nails it. But as soon as it gets mildly cold, she can't stand it. And she and yep. she's a horrible duck hunting dog because she's miserable. And it's one of those you can make her go do it or I can just grab the Munstie over here with a little bit more coat density and she'll sit sit out there while it's 20 degrees outside, right? But your yep. short hairs no, exactly it because it has the proper coat that they're supposed to have. And I know I'm bashing on my dog here, but it's a perfect example of breed standard, right? No, you're exactly right. I mean, you look at Falco, uh, even Falco, he's he's got good, he's got a good density. And what that density means is... Uh, hairs per square inch if you want to say that you know he's got good density he's got a, a dense coat but it's not long and it doesn't have a lot of undercoat if you look at his coat versus like sonia you know my female or his coat versus you know even calypso it, you can definitively see the difference and and that's a big yeah. thing like i think you know rachel is almost in the same situation where I know she doesn't have a lot of density on her bottom side, but it also works in her, you know, against her because she's got really thin hair too. You know, it's very short. It, yeah. it doesn't, you know, it's not, it's not longer than your, I'd say your average short hairs or what they're typically supposed to be. Yeah. And, you know, so that's a great example of you can use a, sh a, a short hair dog, like a German short hair, for duck hunting in, in some cold environments. Uh, now, are right. we saying that it can withhold, you know, freaking like below freezing ice, snow, as well as a German wire hair or something? You know, maybe not, but uh, they can withhold 
cold a lot better than what a lot of people really think just because they're short haired dogs. Um, yeah. And conversely, it, you have long hair dogs. If you have the right comb or equipment, it's really not that big of a deal to comb out burrs and stuff like that. You know, some people hate it. Like you said, it's really, a, it comes down to, do you mind taking two minutes on the porch or tailgate and comb that stuff out while you drink a beer? Uh, right. You know, if, if you don't mind it, don't let that deter you from getting a longer hair dog. Right. And I'm going to ask you a question now. So here's part of the whole puppy series thing. Um, how do you know what that puppy's coat is going to be when it's eight weeks old? Uh, I mean, clearly the genetics plays a part, knowing the parents yeah. and trusting the breeder and all that. But beyond that, I, you know, that's really the only thing I know with my experience to look at is just the parents and asking the breeder for their advice. Uh, and then, I, you know, as far as going to pick up your puppy, you know, maybe check it out then, but you know, we all know that puppies coats change. I mean, there are some breeds out there that even their color slightly changes. Uh, so, you know, as far as coat density, I don't know how accurate that is when they're younger to really judge that. So it, it's actually at, at eight weeks old, you can determine coverage and density pretty well. You're not going to be able to judge okay. overall length of coat. So that that's the biggest thing is to make sure that you're looking, you know, if, if, if a coat, if a dog's coat is one of your concerns or is one of your key factors in, in picking a puppy out of a litter, then I would look at, you know, is, is the dog bald in between its front legs? you know, in the armpits, basically, is the dog got a bare belly, like completely bare, no puppy fuzz, no nothing. It's just naked. Okay. Um, it, that's, mm -hmm. that's some of the stuff I would look at, uh, when, when selecting my puppy or when I select one of my puppies is that's what I look at knowing at eight weeks old that generally that's going to be kind of, it, it's funny. It's weird. We just had, um, one of our, clients over here oh two nights ago and she's really big into confirmations stuff and we were talking about it and i learned a lot in the fact that a puppy believe it or not a puppy that is between eight and ten weeks old confirmation wise is going to be the exact dog you're going to get at two years old so if you can okay. stack a puppy if you can stack a puppy and look at that dog and, and get it to settle down enough and stack that puppy and see its, its angulations and it's, you know, the angulation of the hind set and the angulation of the front and how deep the chest is and relation of ears to eyes and all the stuff that people in confirmation look at, that is exactly what that dog's going to be at, at about two years old. And then all of a sudden, just like with humans, yeah, almost just like humans, puberty hits and they all get crazy and gangly and hair falls out and new hair grows where it wasn't before, <laughs> you know, all this other stuff. And, mm -hmm. and they, they look like the worst ungodly thing you've ever seen in your entire life. And then all of a sudden they kind of mature into, Oh, okay. You are kind of a good looking dog. Gotcha. <laughs> they level back out. Yeah, uh, well, exactly. well, that's interesting. I have a question for you then. All right. Okay. So you're saying at eight weeks old, you know, if coat density is your thing, it's a priority for you. You you go and look at your puppy at eight weeks old. Um, put it in the perspective of that buyer. Say that the coat, like you said, is a priority. But most puppies go home around eight weeks old. 
how would you right. look at it as a breeder if somebody shows up to pick up their puppy at eight weeks old, checks the coat density, and is just like, I got to back out because the coat density isn't right. You know, a lot of people, especially first time owners, they're going to shy away from making that drastic of a, I'm not taking this puppy home because of a coat. Like what are your thoughts on literally right there at the moment that they're eight weeks and you're picking up, they back out because of a reason like that. You know, it it goes back to kind of everything you guys have talked about within this, within this series is, you know, picking that right breeder is that that breeder shouldn't even balk at it. I'm not even going to balk at it. If, if, if somebody comes in, it's just like, Blaine Carter says, the day you're picking up that puppy, I'm looking you in the eyes and I'm asking, are you sure? Is this what you want to do? Yep. Is this the one that you want? Because once you sign, it sounds bad. It's almost like buying a car. Once you sign that dotted line, <laughs> you have literally just signed for a commitment, not just with this dog, but with me and Kylie and yep you know, the kennel and this organization and everything else, that is it. This is, this is your dog. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's kind of along those lines. So I don't mind if somebody shows up and at that eight week mark, the, the puppy we've kind of talked about and gotten our short list and they, they, they know, or they think most of my buyers generally, I mean, honestly, you know, perfect example is one of my buyers is like, dude, I'm not picking my puppy until the day I pick it up. And I'm like, brother, you're second on the list. I mean, you know, and we're like, well, what about all the other other guys on the list? They're they're all like, well, what about, what about? I'm like, hey, guys, make you a short list. You know, pick you about two or three that you think you like or why and stuff like that. And just know that, you know, one of them, the one, one of them that you may want, may be the one that's going home with you. But, you know, if you're seven and eight on the list of 10, then, you know, there might be a possibility it's not, you know, but again, that's also where that breeder has got to be really responsible to and helping that buyer select the right dog to suit the, the, everything, the environment, the dog's going into the, the skill level of the handler or the owner, the, um, you know, the, the, the hunting situation, the whole nine yards, you know, that, that's, that's to me, that's part of being a responsible breeder. Absolutely. And you, and you stole the quote I was going to pull out. If you didn't hit on it, I was going to bring up what Blaine said to, you know, look them in the eyes and, you know, forever hold your peace type of moment. Uh, so, Mm -hmm. you know, if, if you get there and you're the buyer and it's, that is a priority of yours, you know, what, what is, you know, even if you pick the wrong breeder and you don't get your deposit back or they don't put you on an, on the list for another litter or something, what is that in comparison to the long run of the dog? You know, is that deposit right. that you, you lose on that for a potential bad fit with the wrong breeder? Is that worth 10 years of having the wrong dog for you? You know, you got to kind of yeah. ask yourself that. So let's go ahead and move on to kind of we had a few few people uh bring up specific questions on asking the breeder um okay first of which hip certifications we you know Uh a lot of people a lot of joe schmoes and average diy guys they don't really understand what they're looking at when they're looking at pedigrees and hip certs and 
you know, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. It's one of those things that I constantly learn and forget. It's like I'm back in high school. I'm learning it for the test. I learn it when it matters to me, when I'm looking at pedigrees for my next dog. And then I'll go right. a year or two without even thinking about them. And so I completely forget on how to read it. And so I have to go back and look it back up and learn how to read them all over again to explain to anybody else. Uh, so go ahead right. and, and kind of give us a, a real quick tutorial on the, your average everyday guy looking at a pedigree and knowing what they're looking at. So it, it, surprisingly enough, other than the German system, um, not all like your NAVDA pedigrees and your AKC pedigrees are not going to have a hip certification listed on that pedigree, believe it or not. Um, or at least from my experience, I, from what I've seen, um, the German systems will have a rating associated with that dog because a rating is, nece is a necessary for that dog to be qualified for breeding. So uh, on a German dog, like a DK dog, you're going to have a rating on that dog's hips. So what does that all mean? I, I, you know, hip dysplasia, the, the big thing with hip dysplasia in the last hundred years has been, you know, individuals um, breeding and doing the right practices. It, it kind of popped up. It got really prevalent. And that's where these, these organizations came in, where they started looking at and testing for it. And, and then, you know, that, that kind of directed people's individual breeding programs. So there's, there's three main certifications on hips out there. One is the, the, almost everybody hears it. It's the OFA uh, and the OFA standard. There's also another one uh, called the pen hip. And then, of course, if you're if you're getting a German dog that is going to be registered in the German system, like either a Deutsch draw hair or a Deutsch Kurtz hair, um, those are actually through the German system. And again, and again, that rating should be directly on the um, uh, the on and toffle or the pedigree for the dog. Now, what does that mean to the puppy buyer? Um, knowing that the parents tested and were evaluated without having hip dysplasia. And there's not a hip dysplasia um, prevalent in that pedigree. Basically shows that their dog has a lower propensity to develop hip dysplasia later on. So as being a breeder, it's, it's, it's kind of like one of those responsible things to do is to make sure that you're breeding dogs that don't exhibit any signs of hip dysplasia because it is a genetic thing that can be trans, you know, that can go from generation to generation and actually will only get worse as it goes on. So, um, it, that's the thing to, that's more of the question to ask is were the parents tested in what system? So then I'll kind of dive into systems really, really quick. Cause this could go on for an entire yeah. episode, <laughs> yeah. but there's three, <laughs> there's, Right. There's three main systems. OFA, as I had mentioned, pen hip, and then of course the German system. OFA is uh, where your vet takes uh, an x-ray or radiograph of the dog's hips while the legs are extended out back of, of the dog. So they usually sedate the dog when they do this because it's kind of uncomfortable and it's you want to get the clearest radiograph that you can absolutely get for them to do the evaluation. Um, 
so the the OFA screening um, looks at, and it's basically it, it's it's really kind of a judgment call. They have individuals that have been looking at these radiographs and hips that have been certified to be able to say yes, that is a excellent, good, fair, whatever. And OFA breaks it down um, according to about six total levels. Um, you've got, I'm sorry, five. You've got excellent, good, fair mild hip dysplasia, moderate hip dysplasia, and severe. So that is six. Okay. And um, really what that means is, is any dog that, if, if it says they have hip dysplasia, that really dog should not have been bred to begin with. And, and you know, that's something to be aware of. Um, I would even be cautionary with fair hips. Uh, generally, most of your dogs are going to fall into the good hip or excellent hip rating for, for, you know, that I would consider to be ones that would be of breed quality or breed standard. Um, pen, pen hip is much more of a scientific measurement of that socket. So they, they do a couple of radiographs and it includes extending the dog's legs in and then out. And then there's an actual rating on that dog, uh, from zero to one. And, and when I say zero to one, I mean, you know, a, a dog that is basically clo closer to zero. So it could have like a point zero one rating is, is a very tight hip and is lack of, uh, hip dysplasia. Uh, a dog that would be like 0.97 actually has hip dysplasia. And the way they look at it is the, the basic threshold is, is about 0.3 to 0.35 is where they say, okay, anything past 0.335 is considered like a mild hip dysplasia, if, if you will or very likely to occur, we should say. Um, and then, of course, there's the German system. The German system goes from A to, um, well, it goes from A to D, but you're rated at A1, A2, B1, B2, C1, C2, and then D1, D2. Anything in a D1, D2 is basically uh, a hip dysplasia dog. Um, C, C dogs are generally not really looked upon with a lot of fair, um, you know, they don't, they don't generally breed anything that's a C hip, um, and even a lower B hip. Sometimes they will only match with a dog that's got a hips, if that makes sense. But that is also a very opinionated thing because the there's only one individual in Germany that rates at least the, the DK dogs. And that could literally be, I've heard stories like when, you know, it, the difference between an A2 hip and a B1 hip is whether that, that gentleman's had his coffee that morning or not, more or less. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very opinionated evaluation, we'll say, uh, yeah. when it comes to that. But yeah, that's kind of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, he sees thousands of these a year, so I mean, I, I hope he knows what he's looking at. But um, yeah. the bigger concern for anybody that's a puppy buyer is that that the the parents were at least tested or or evaluated, and that there's some sort of history within the um, the pedigree. And you're not going to be able to tell. I mean, most people 
past about two generations aren't going to know with the great, great, great grandsires it had ever been tested or not and stuff like that. But I mean, the most important is that, you know, the dam or the, the mother and the father have been tested and, and have showed to be, you know, of good quality hips and are not, you know, anything lower than fair on the OFA yeah. rating. No, absolutely. So, so two quick questions. Uh, number one is, does the hip uh, certifications really show you anything other than just hip dysplasia? Does it kind of go in and give you a, a good indicator on if there's going to be ACL issues, which you see a lot of nowadays, unfortunately, or absolutely. just other absolutely. joint issues? What? Because I think absolutely. a lot of people they just so. hear hip cert- certificates and they kind of don't realize that it, it can be an indicator of more more. Uh, other stuff that you see more commonly like, like ACL issues nowadays. Right. And, and that's it, the hips are the biggest thing. Cause that's what gets the most attention. Um, but yeah. if you think about it, you know, on a confirmation piece anyway, um, like we were, I, like I said, I was just talking to a client and stuff is that, you know, function follows form with these dogs. So if, if the hips aren't right, if the hips are loose and the dog and its day-to-day activities of running and hunting and stuff like that, then think of it almost like a person. You know, if, if you've got somebody that's 30 years old and goes through a hip replacement, they're not, they're not playing for the Tafanay Buccaneers. You know what I mean? Yeah, because yeah. they're they're just not. I mean, all if you think about all the supporting muscles and and ligaments and and tendons and stuff that support all that, all that's going to be strained at all times. That's all going to be moved. That's all going to be having issues and stuff like that. And if a dog's got fairly loose hips, and you think about how these dogs move in the field and how they cut back and forth and stuff like that, and how they go from you know, if you've seen like any of my dogs or some, some really high powered short hairs, they can go from zero to a, a dead spinning stop to point a bird. That's yep. putting all that pressure on the, on those other, you know, joints and ligaments and tendons and stuff. And that's where you see dogs that blow ACLs. Yeah. Okay. That is because they're not moving correctly with either their their front legs or back legs and generally if you're if you've got a dog that's got some pretty significant issues in the hips it's going to have significant issues other places like in the shoulders the shoulder alignment how they reach how they move and also the elbows and stuff like that well the rest of the body is kind of uh compensating for for the misalignment elsewhere right and so so just your opinion, you know, you get, you get a lot of people out there. Uh, it, it's hard to tell people you need to stop talking to that guy immediately. Would you say that hip right. cert, uh, certif- certifications, I'll get it out one day. If, if you're talking to a breeder and he doesn't do the certification on his dog's hips, would you say that that is a deal breaker for you and that you, you would suggest to other people if they don't do that, go find another breeder. Is that just a perfect example of responsible Man, breedership? See, I'm trying to lighten <laughs> up this podcast here. And, and like you threw this out with, in your opinion, Scott, your opinion, what would you, yes. uh, my opinion. Yeah. I, I don't, I would just absolutely avoid that situation completely. I wouldn't, you know, the whole thing with, um, there's a lot of fine dogs out there 
Corlander talked about it. There's a bunch of fine dogs out there. There's a lot of dogs that probably have no issues with their hips at all. Uh, and we're bred properly and, and they did what they needed to do and they're great hunting dogs and stuff. But, you know, to me, why chance it, man? Why chance it? That's like, yeah. that's like going up and putting, you know, you, you, you go to the Vegas, you hit the slot machine and you hit it for five grand and you get, you, you're walking out of the casino and you're like, screw it. I'm going to the freaking roulette table and putting all five grand on, on double zeros. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just let it roll. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, yep. it, and, and nobody, nobody I, I've, I, and this has kind of happened to me more here recently in the last couple of weeks with talking to some people about, you know, puppies and potential owners and stuff like that. It, guys, we, we all know for the most part, and, and the biggest thing we talked about it when Adam was on the podcast and stuff like that, the hardest part about doing all this is that we know even now I'm picking this eight week old puppy up that I'm going to outlive this dog. Right. Yeah. A- unless you're, unless you're at that point or unless there's some other extenuating circumstances going on, you know, you're going to outlive that dog. And, and, why do you want to go through, like, why do you want to risk that? Why do you want to risk that, 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 you know, even if it's your first dog or your last dog or whatever, why do you want to risk that, that potential issue that within two years, that dog's going to have severe hip dysplasia and you're going through ACL repairs and you're going through hip replacements and you're going through all this stuff because you, you know, for the benefit of, the dog and for you and stuff like that. It, it's just, it's one of those things, man. It, you're just rolling the dice and hoping for freaking, you know, box cars and you, you could end up with snake eyes, you know, more or less. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Well, and I mean, we, so we just touched on hips and ACLs, you know, again, in, in my, my limited experience in this world, ACL seems to be the most common thing nowadays. Like so many people have their dogs, just blowing out and and it's just it's unfortunate because it's it's a long recovery it's not it's not a very affordable recovery you know it it, it hurts a little bit uh what are some other specific health questions and common uh health issues that you would like to see become kind of common practice for people to ask their breeders about is, is there anything else that you would suggest I mean, other than your, all your standards, like, you know, the shots, the rabies, that piece of it. Um, you know, there's some people that say they'll test for eyes, but I mean, eyes get old, you know, uh, I I've got a dog that's 10 years old that's starting to get cataracts, but I mean, she's got no other issues. Was that a breeding thing? No, probably not. You can't judge that at that age, you know? Um, so the biggest thing with that is, is that, that the breeder is actually providing some sort of a genetic um, certification on the dogs and that the, the breeder is actually willing to stand behind any, gen, you know, the lack of genetic defects in the dogs, uh, whether that's the hip dysplasia, the eyes, um, you know, stuff like that, um, and then be willing to you know, do the right thing and be responsible. Uh, much like the Carters had said is, you know, as a breeder myself, you know, if, if I've got a dog um, that is definitively has a genetic issue, such as um, a heart murmur, a, you know, hip dysplasia, something along those lines, then 
I'm going to either buy that dog back or um, replace that dog with another dog. Or if, you know, that person says, I can't live without my Jojo, then we're going to pay to, you know, have that dog fixed or spayed <laughs> or neutered or something along those lines. Um, because, you know, you, you don't want to carry that forward, obviously, for any reason. But then also on top of that, it's not it's not so much being a responsible breeder. At that point, you know, oops, we had a, something happen. I'm going to look back into my breeding and say, what happened there? If that's a genetic issue, then where yeah. in my genetic breeding program did, did we go wrong or where, where did this come from, you know, and be really responsible as far as that piece of it is concerned, uh, as well, you know, um, it, that's, that's a huge part of it. I think, um, you know, I would, I would shy away from any breeder that doesn't give some sort of guarantee on genetic issues with their dogs. E even if you got a breeder that says, Hey, I don't, I don't OFA test my dogs or pen hit my dogs or, or anything along those lines for breeding. Um, but I do guarantee against genetic issues. You know, I would, I would be, Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I get it. You don't test. That's not a big, huge deal. And, and, you know, I ask myself, is that the end all be all? No. Okay. And okay. But at least you guarantee against genetic issues and then find out what that guarantee is. You know, yeah. is that guarantee like, Oh, well I'll just replace the puppy or, you know, what is that? What does that all encompass? No, all good stuff. I, I agree. Makes sense. Uh, well, that, that kind of concludes my uh, Ask the Breeder section. Uh, let's go that's on it. into Asking the Trainers oh. section. That's it. That's that. That's really it, man. The Carters kind of, you know, it was two parts. They they kind of hit on a lot of stuff unless you think we missed something. No, I think they did a good So, I, I mean, if, yeah. you, if you got something you want to touch on, then let's, let's hit it. No, I think they did a great job. I really did. Um, you know, Asking the Breeder, I don't want to say a, boatload of questions, but asking a breeder questions actually, in my mind, even as a breeder solidifies your commitment to what you're, what you're getting yourself into. And, and I don't care if this is your first dog. Or your, it shows you're invested. Right. I don't care if this is your first or 15th dog, you know, me as a breeder, like, like the Carter say, we're, we're in a marriage, you know, and, and if you're not willing to kind of step it up a little bit and ask at least some questions, you know, um, then, you know, you might not be the right person for my dog, bottom line, uh, when it comes down to it. Yep. So, um, no, I think they covered it pretty well. Um, you know, the only thing that I would add is it, any of the prospective people out there, they're looking for a puppy and stuff like that. We talked about doing your research, do this, do that. But we've, we've also talked a lot about in this podcast in, in the last, I don't know, four or five episodes of like, well, make sure they do this, make sure they do that. I don't want to say, I don't want to scare people because there are a lot of great breeders out there. There's a lot of people that are very responsible in their programs and they're doing the right thing and stuff like that. They just have a different way of doing it than me and the Carters. Let's put it that way. You know, um, right. but there are some yeah. minimums, you know, I mean, health certifications, health guarantees, um, involvement with that breeder afterwards and stuff like that. That, that there's some, there's some hard, hard things in there that, that I would, I would definitively shy away from, you know, if you call me and say, Hey, I'd like a puppy. And I'd be yeah. like, yep, I'll meet you in Tennessee next week. And then I never talk to you again. There's an issue, you know? 
or if you're in, if yeah. you find yourself in the Home Depot parking lot and somebody's selling short hairs out of the tailgate of a truck, you know, ask yourself if that's your, <laughs> ask yourself if that's your yeah. next bird dog or not. And, and again, you know, I, I don't want to start getting messages right after this episode comes out. We know that some people have gotten the best dog in the world yep. in that scenario. Yeah. You know, it, it has happened to where somebody has gotten their dream dog. But again, it goes back to the law of averages. Yep. How, you know, the ratio, how likely is that dog going to be? And if you really want a bird dog, do the homework and set yourself up for success. We're not saying that you can't make it work with that rescue yep. or that dog from the Home Depot parking yep. lot or it, or uh, just a rehome situation. We're not saying that, but we're saying if you're going to if you really want to invest the time, energy and effort, it's like what you said on the Vegas uh, part. Why take the risk? Right. You know, set yourself up for success in the long run the best way you know how. Because we all know the guys that they've done their homework. They found the pick of the litter. They found like their dream line and their breeding. And the dogs just don't work out, yep. right? Yeah. <laughs> for whatever reason, it just, it the, the genetics wasn't there. It didn't line up like they thought. So we're not saying it's a surefire way of getting that dream dog. Right. It's, it's really just, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's just a better starting it, it, point. That's all it is. Improving your odds. That's all you're doing is really just improving your odds. You you went yes. from a, you know, 20, 20 and one to horse to a, you know, one and four horse, you know, so. Yep. Absolutely. So that, that kind of concludes the Ask the Breeder. I guess if you look at this, uh, we kind of went into puppy selection, some stuff that we missed on uh, the talks with uh, Craig Koshik. We we covered a couple uh, health stuff that maybe we didn't touch on with the Carters. Now let's get into Ask the Trainer and some of the stuff and questions that I got after uh, Angie's episode on uh, kind of getting the dog home and starting the training process and getting in the right routine and stuff like that. Um Number one, uh, really the, the majority of the questions and follow-up I got asking questions that we didn't really touch on, it was really primarily related to socialization. Right. Okay. We didn't touch on that on the episode and we got, you know, how do you introduce the puppy to the family the right way or introduce it to a household that already has a dog? And then I, uh, Jacob, uh, who's buying a puppy from you, he was like, what's the proper way to socialize a dog? Uh, with other dogs when you don't have a dog in the house, right? Like he wants to make sure that he gets enough socialization with other dogs. Right. So real quick, just as your experience with a trainer and your thoughts on it, break down socialization from all kinds of different angles. So socialization for a dog, that that's a, you know, um, that's a huge part of how they learn and, and that, initial and early socialization of the dogs and the puppies actually kind of sets a standard for them all the way through their life, honestly. And, and so what that really kind of means to a lot of people is, um, and I hope Angie's listening, but, um, structure, just absolute structure. Um, if you think about how that puppy was raised by mom and how, if the breeder did what he needed to do, and even if, even if it was a breeder that didn't do what he needed to do or, or is, is not as involved with the litter as like, let's say we are. Um, meaning that, you know, w w I've got a litter of puppies in my living room right now and we're interacting with them 
daily and we're involved with them and we're playing with them and we're touching them and mom's in and out and people are in and out and other dogs are in and out. Um, you know, somebody that breeds a litter and that, that litter is basically with mom up until the point that they're weaned and then they're kind of weaned off and then they're with mom. Mom's still going to teach them a social structure. You know, mom's still going to teach them what's right and wrong. So a puppy leaves, leaves its litter, understanding its litter's structure. Where is it set? Where is its rank kind of within the puppy pack a little bit? Where is, you know, what's right, what's wrong? What's, you know, what's left and what's right? Um, and, and we, you need to, as your new owners need to kind of continue that when you get to the house first is that puppy is going to be really confused when it gets home. Obviously their brothers and sisters aren't around, you know, mom's not around. So there's going to be a little bit of an adjustment period there. I'd like to tell my owners and stuff, give it a week, give it at least a week, but make that week very structured, meaning very set food feeding times, very set outside and potty times, very set individual socialization with, with you and your family and stuff like that, and give that dog some structure right from the start. And that's going to help that dog almost immediately kind of phase into your lifestyle. Okay. Um, it, it, you know, Angie had mentioned it like, okay, well, you gotta, you gotta prep your house just like, you know, you're bringing home a kid or a baby or something like that. You know, everything you think puppy can grab goes up higher than what you think and then move it higher again, because the dog's going to grow ex- exponentially <laughs> within six months, you know? So, um, but giving that dog some form of structure when it gets home is going to help with that initial transition right from the start. And then just after that week, we kind of expand that to the point where we're like showing that dog what our structure looks like, our day-to-day life, you know? So, you know, most of us, I would say probably 99.9% of us have a regular 40-hour a week job. So what does that mean? Does that mean you leave in the morning at, you know, 7.30 in the morning and then, um, you know, go from there and go to work and that puppy sits in a crate or in an area for a certain amount of time, you know, by itself for eight hours until you get back home from work. Um, I don't know. And and that's, that's, again, that should be kind of done incrementally. I'll say, you know, I I mean that first week you should not saying you got to take an entire week off of work and, you know, figure that out, but make some arrangements, find a puppy sitter, maybe, you know, where that puppy can get out and relieve themselves or that puppy can interact with something or or something along those lines. Um, That's going to really help that puppy along, um, you know, initially as it, as it starts integrating into you and your schedule and your, your lifestyle and stuff like that. When you're talking about introduction, sure. introduction, and, and that, that is, I was about to say, yeah, in, in, introduction to, let's say, you know, cause what you just said, yeah, routine that that's paramount to get, getting the dog used to you and your household and your routine. But you know, what about introducing a puppy to a, an already established dog 
within your household? Because, you know, is it, it's, would you say it's advisable to just go drop them off in front of the dog and let them figure it no, out? No, 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 no. <laughs> it, it's just like anything else that, that dog that's owned that house for a while has his structure already. Okay. And it is your job right. and responsibility to show that puppy what that structure is, not that other dog's job. That because if if it happens with that other mature dog, generally it's going to happen in a very negative way that could impact that puppy for a long time. And I'm not talking about that other dog just, you know, bullying or beating up or attacking that puppy. It could be literally depending on what that dog structure is. Your puppy's like, what? Okay. Jax doesn't care what's going on. Well, fuck, I'm not going to care what's going on either. You know, it, it, it's kind of right. along those lines is you still have to do that introduction with the other dog. Yes. I would say probably again for that first week, I would kind of limit it to a certain extent. I wouldn't just come in the front door and say, Hey, guess what, Jax? Here's Jojo. You guys are going to be new best friends. Now it, it doesn't generally work like that. <laughs> so, you know, structured playtime, meaning supervised playtime when you guys are together uh, not during any feeding times. Uh, I wouldn't feed the dogs anywhere near each other initially. I, I may start them from like one room to the other and then kind of bring them kind of together as, as the puppy grows and starts to learn boundaries uh, and stuff like that. Uh, because that other dog will eventually start to show that dog, you know, boundaries. Hey, this is mine, not yours. Hey, this is cool. This is not. And you could, you could get very lucky and have that one dog that's got very strong paternal skills and be like, you know, you bring a puppy in and you've got a female and all of a sudden that female's like, I've got a new baby. It's mine. Don't touch it, you know, and get very, yeah. <laughs> you know, something along those lines. But the vast majority of us have, you know, if you're talking about somebody's bringing a puppy into the house, they're bringing a puppy in the house. And if they've got another hunting dog or working dog, that dog's generally, I'm going to say a rough guess, anywhere from eight to 10 years old already, you know, and, and the last yeah. thing they want is a little, you know, eight week old scamper running around tugging on ears and tails and other body parts and stuff, you know? So I would do it very incrementally, you know, after that week of initial structure for the puppy, maybe take another week of doing some supervised playtime with the dogs together um, not with anything that could be possibly seemed as possessive. So, you know, everybody thinks, Oh, playtime, yeah. I'm going to start throwing toys and we're going to play toys and tug of war and stuff like that. <laughs> Ooh, that, that could potentially add very yeah. bad. I mean, playtime is literally maybe out in the yard, 10, 20 minutes, you know, we're all kind of yeah. running around sniffing and playing and stuff, or it could be, you know, a socialization playtime or just socialization time on the couch watching Netflix, you know, and, and right. spending some time together like yep. that. Um, and then the, the next step of this, which you're probably going to ask anyway, is how do I start introducing my puppy to other dogs? Like at a NABDA day yep. or in a hunting situation and stuff. To me, that's a huge, I, I see yep. that all the time at, at the training facility here. We get people all the time. Their dog comes in. My dog's aggressive. Well, why is it aggressive? Well, when it was, you know, 18 weeks old, it got jumped by another dog. Well, how did it get jumped by another dog? Well, they were running around playing and, and puppy was over there playing with him. He just flipped out and dove on him. I was like, well, 
what happened. You know, the puppy gr- reach up and grab that dog by the, the lip. And that dog was like, no, you know, or something along those lines. It, it's, it happens more frequent than it should. Let's put it that way. So in that time right. frame, before you start introducing your puppy to new dogs and socialization with new, new dogs, that dog and that puppy has to understand a certain level of structure and um, I'll use Angie's term management. And, and that could be, you know, energy level management. So, you know, introduction to new dogs and stuff, you know, puppies first uh, thing that they want to do is for most dogs, what do they want to do? Just like people, they want to run up, jump on you. Hi, I'm Jojo. I, I love you. You're awesome. Cool. I'm going to grab your <laughs> ear and I'm going to bark at you crazy. Don't let it happen. Let that dog know that it's not an acceptable behavior from the start and, and make sure that dog is on a leash or a tether or something along those lines when it's in and around other dogs. And, and then just don't yeah. put your dog in that situation to where it could possibly be hurt, maimed or, or others, you know, something else happened. I'll say, yeah, it, it's just the socialization with other dogs is really sketchy. Um, as a young dog, uh, it can go one of two ways. And if it goes the right way, that's awesome. Your dog will always get along with everybody and everything's cool. It, if you kind of fumble it a little bit, it could be really, really bad. That's that's kind of why I try and advise people to, uh, if they can, everybody's situation is different. Steer away from your public dog parks. Uh-huh. Try and go with dogs that you know and the owners that you know. Uh, that's why I like NAVDA chapters yep. and other training organizations and groups and so forth because you know that the people that are attending NAVDA training days or any other training group, they have a vested interest. Right. You know, it, Not to say that they do everything right or that their dogs are perfect or don't show aggression, but you know that the people are there because they care about their dogs. Right. If you go to a public dog park just in the middle of the city you have no idea what kind of crazy you know new jersey cat lady that you're going to come across that you know it's just they don't have any understanding of how the dogs work and you don't know anything from you know are their dogs vaccinated you don't know the health issues you don't know a lot of stuff at these dog parks and so i try and steer people away from that when they ask how do i get more socialization it's just like try and find a good environment to where you're going to be with like-minded people, not on how to train your dog, but at least people that are invested in their dogs for the right reasons. I I would say you, you must've been reading my mind because that's exactly where I was going with that (laughs) before you stepped in. (laughs) But um, it's socialization is one thing, but I I really want to kind of, wrap that all up with just exposure. You know, your puppy's going to benefit from exposure yeah. to new stuff. So, you know, you can take, I, I would not take a puppy to a dog park or a puppy park or anything along those lines for more on the health reasons than anything else. You know, a, a dog park is basically yeah. the equivalent of the McDonald's bouncy ball play gym for disease and cold. <laughs> your kids. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean it's like, oh geez, we went to Chuck E. Cheese this morning and and little Jane and little Dick have got like, you know, the sniffles and all this other craziness right now. <laughs> well no kidding, you know. Um but it, it's um I would say exposure. You can take puppy to like 
PetSmart or to go with you to Home Depot or go with you places. And, you know, you can carry that. I'm sorry, up until they're, you know, almost 20 weeks old, you can carry that puppy with you. You can put it in your arms and carry it. Let somebody come up and say, hi, let somebody scratch its head. Let me say, oh my God, so cute. And all this other stuff. That's actually good for the dog. The exposure to new sensories and new things is, is good for the dog, but it has to have that structure involved with it. You know, the puppy wants to go play and pounce. Well, okay. Hey puppy, that's, that's not cool in this environment. You know, there's a time for that. Not right now and and stuff. So, I mean, that, that's really where I would, I would kind of focus listeners to is that, you know, don't be afraid, you know, just go to say, yeah, don't take your dog to the dog park. Yes, you're absolutely right. Don't take the dog dog. But you know what? You're going to go see your kids play softball and there's going to be, you know, 50, 60 other parents there. Bring the puppy and go sit in the bleachers. Yep. You know, yeah, let, let the dog experience all that. The sounds, the sights, the smells of, of new things and stuff. That's, that's good for a dog. That's good for the dog's development. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think that that wraps up socialization real quick. Just got a few more things to touch on real quick. Uh, one person asked the considerations when naming your dog as a trainer. Do you put any stock on names sounding like commands or or anything such as that? Or is, is there any special things that you would say that as a as a puppy buyer you should probably think about when naming your dog? This is this is me. This is Scott and RGK's thing. Okay. Name your dog whatever you feel comfortable yelling at the top of your lungs in the field. (laughs) (laughs) So if you want to name your dog princess and don't mind standing in the field (laughs) yelling, princess, come here, princess, princess, then fine. Be with it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I do try to like a dog's call. We'll say what it is. It's a call name. It's a, it's the daily use name that you utilize for that dog. Yeah. Um, not the extended registered version of, you know, whatever that dog's name, you know, uh, smoking Hills guns yeah. for hire, <laughs> whatever, you know, and no offense. I don't even know if there's a smoking Hills kennel out there, but if I just ticked you off, I'm sorry, I apologize. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, d- yeah, just running star over the moon retriever, exactly. like whatever the heck it is. Exactly. Yeah, you just, just pick yeah. a call name that is. I tend to like to think of like at least one, no more than two syllables. So you know, you know most yep. of our dogs' names: Sassy, Sonia, Calypso, Falco. Something that that ends with kind of a a, a hard tone to it a little bit. Uh, something along those lines that I think yep. it absolutely makes a difference. Uh, dogs do not understand spoken language like we understand spoken language. They understand tone of voice. So more consistency in the tone of your voice, the better response you're going to get out of your dog. So just think of it along those lines. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, it's one of those things, you know, you have to decide how much stock you want to put into your name sounding like a command. You know, some people I hear, I don't care. I think my dog's smart enough to determine the difference. Okay, that's fine. Uh, You know, some people think that if you name your dog Bo, then it's going to mess up if you use no or woe or go or whatever. No, But, you know, you got to remember really any of that. You got to remember a lot of that stuff is is very situational too. 
You know what I mean? If a dog's on, on point, you're not going to look at that dog and call that dog's name. Right. Right. Exactly. You know, and, and the same thing is I know a lot of retriever guys release their dogs on their dog's name as opposed to giving it a command. Well, and that's yep. fine too, because you're not going to, very situational. If the dog's been force fetched properly and everything else, then when it hears its name, we'll say, we'll use Bo. That's a great example. It, you're not going to reach down, tap that dog in the head and say, Bo. And he's going to think, what? Whoa. Okay. I'm not going to move. You know, <laughs> it, 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 yeah. you know, it's, it's tied situationally. I wouldn't, I would not be worried about naming a dog that may sound similar to a command within your command structure. I, that, that to me, unless you're going to name a dog specifically, whoa, or come or something along those lines, you know what I mean? So, I mean, yeah, yeah. And, and it, it, it kind of goes back into, I take the approach. I've had a few people ask me about that and I advise them, you know, kind of your sentiment. Why well, take the chance? I I'm with you. I don't think it's really going to make a difference, but you know what? If you really want to name your bow, your dog bow, name, it, name bow. it. But if you're slightly concerned about it, name them something else. Yeah. Uh, but really, I've come across in the field more. You could really kind of boil it down to safety concerns over the name more so than confusion on training. And what I mean by that is we've all had somebody who, you know, wants to name their dog Rooster or. Yeah. Uh, bird you know i hunted with a guy in oklahoma his dog's name was bird and it was it honestly like i didn't think anything about it until we were in the field and he was one of those guys calling his dog's name every five seconds and so you're just walking through the field and he's yelling bird and every time he yells bird every, somebody every, in the group sh- is drawing yep, their shot shoulder and gun yep yeah exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> i can see that i never yeah, thought about so it it's like, like that, you know yeah. think about that yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just like if you name your dog something that every time you call your dog, all of a sudden you get shotguns pointed at you, you might want to rethink that name. Yeah. Uh, it might be kind of neat, kind of be kind of cool around the house or whatever, but think practical. Uh, I've come across that. And, you know, it's same thing with rooster. You know, a lot of people name their dogs rooster or something. And it's just like if you're pheasant hunting and you're constantly yelling rooster, what, it's the same thing as bird, right? Yeah. I, I, it, from a personal standpoint, I've never heard of that until you just mentioned it, but it makes perfect, perfect sense to me in my own brain. So, I mean, I know a, a really good <laughs> DD guy here whose name, his female's name is Birdie. And, but he does call the dog yep. Birdie. Uh, but I could see where you know, exactly you're out in the Dakotas or something like that, and he's bird. Bird, where you at? Bird. And I'm like, God, dang, dude. <laughs> yep. I'd, be, I, I'd be exhausted from just always yep. being ready to kill something, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, so, so real quick, uh, the last one that I have on here, uh, we, we got a few more follow-ups because I, uh, we touched on it with Angie. It, it kind of got relegated to uh, to just a crate training uh answered by her and we, we kind of covered the the ins and outs of crate training and why it's important and why everybody should crate train um equipment must-haves for bringing a puppy home you know everybody's getting a puppy they're excited they want to train their dog other than the crate training because we've touched on that what must-haves would you say an owner needs to have for their dog so here's here's one i mean here there's going to be some that are, people are going to be like what are you kidding me um 
for me personally, stock up on puppy pads. So it, you got to remember, if you're a good breeder, you're going to be doing some of this initially anyway and trying to get the puppies to understand that they don't want to go where they live or they sleep or anything along those lines. Um, and we give very clear guidance on, you know, when and how to start, like, house training your dogs and stuff. And I've got the, I got the, what I call the rule of the threes, meaning three seconds after a dog eats, it's going to want to poop three seconds after it wakes up, it's going to want to pee. And if it's out playing in, in your living room, kitchen, dining room, if it's playing for longer than about three minutes, it's probably going to stop and squat. So my, my rule is, you know, like I said, the rule of the threes, you just keep that in mind as you start going through, but there's always going to be accidents. And if, if the puppy knows puppy pads and you place a puppy pad next to the door. And if for some reason, like Angie was talking about, like, oh, I had a brain fart. I had a, a, a Zoom meeting at, at this time and puppy was running around and I had to take the meeting and then I turned around. And, well, at least the puppy's got somewhere to go close to where you would normally take the puppy outside. So puppy pads is one. Um, training gear, I would definitively get, um, much like she said, I would get some, some hard toys, some harder toys, stay away from the soft, fuzzy stuff, mm -hmm. uh, even stuff that crinkles and squeaks and makes any type of noise when the dog goes to bite down on it is generally not a good thing. Okay. So, uh, some, some harder toys, mm -hmm. uh, some Nyla bones and stuff like that. Some other training gear that I would start thinking about um, from a from a puppy perspective and getting into training your dog and hunting your dog, um, I would I would definitively get probably a good leash um, and not an extractor or extracto leash. You know the leashes that basically go out on a <laughs> excuse me on a reel and you could maybe maybe stop them with a with a button maybe not and they kind of retract in and out and stuff stay away from those yeah. uh, because you're trying to teach puppy boundaries and if a puppy is on a leash then the boundary should be either heel or close to heel and not pulling and i think that the timing yeah. on a retractable lead is you know not necessarily what it needs to be in order to teach that puppy those boundaries. Um, I would also initially with a puppy and not talking about like crates and stuff like that. You should crate, you should get a crate, you should get a quality crate. You should get a Dakota 283 with a puppy insert. <laughs> um, but, um, it, yeah, you should get a crate that that's kind of a necessity to a certain point. Um, and then, you know, as the dog starts getting older and developing and gets to a point, maybe a, a quality e-collar, um, a wonder lead is amazing. Uh, the Delmar Smith wonder lead, which I think yep. you can get in a few different places and stuff like that. Um, I think is a pretty essential tool for most people. And um, I'm not huge on check cords. I'm not a big check cord type guy because I, I work predominantly with my young dogs and the dogs that work with me. Um, you know, I, I try to get a recall pretty quick on them and they, I want to see that cooperation where they want to be around me. But depending on where you get your dog and what type of dog, um, a check cord has a necessity we'll say. 
So like a 25 or a 30 yeah. foot, yeah. you know, check cord that you can allow that dog to exercise and run, but still be under some sort of control, um, could possibly be a huge benefit to some people. Yeah. So real quick, two questions and we'll wrap this sucker up. Oh, no. Uh, you, I, I want you to, I want you to reiterate on what you just said on the e-collar. You said a really key thing on that is eventually as the dog develops, you're yep. going to want to start looking into an e-collar. Yep. Uh, we get asked all the time. I'm getting a puppy home, you know, next, next week, it's going to be eight weeks old. What e-collar do I need to have right now? And I, I could say, it. I'm going to let you go ahead and just real quick explain to, to the listeners why at nine weeks old, you don't need an e-collar right away. There's, well, one of the biggest reasons, honestly, is um, the collar's not going to fit the dog. <laughs> if you think about it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know what I mean? The collar's not going to fit the dog. So the collar's not going to understand. I mean, the dog's not going to be able to even wear it or, or get the proper, you know, either correction or pressure that it needs from the collar. The other thing is there's so much more that you're doing that you should be doing in that, in that young development, developmental age that doesn't require an additional stimulus. You're going to have control of that dog. Um, you know, it's going to be on a lead or it's going to be, if it's not on a lead, it's generally probably small enough. You can run it down if you needed to run it down. You know, you don't need to have a collar on it trying to stop it. Um, and, and there's nothing that you're going to teach that dog in the first, I would say, eight months to a year of that dog's life with a collar that's going to be beneficial. You know, generally it's going to be, yep. generally it's going to be something that you're going to do and it's going to be correlated in that dog's mind as a very negative thing. And then you're just, without even thinking about it, you just built in a huge training hurdle for that dog somewhere and, and generally it's going to be in recall or search or something along those lines is where i've seen a lot of it so yeah don't don't yeah. have to get it no, absolutely yeah you don't have to get yeah, an e-collar it's, it's no rush by any means nope, you don't have to get an e-collar before that dog is nine months old there's just no reason and i don't care i've seen some guys that have got dogs that are six and a half, seven months old and 55, 60 pounds. And they're like, yeah, I got an e Look, it, it doesn't matter. It, it's almost like, you know, think back when you went to grade school or whatever, you've always got that one kid that looks like he's 18, but he's really only 12, you know, he doesn't have, <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have yeah. the mental capacity of an 18 year old, not that 18 year olds have a lot, but they've got more <laughs> than a 12 year old, you know? So yeah, yeah, that 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 is a very good point. You know, when somebody says, "Well, when they're this size and get an e collar," the 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 physical makeup does not make or break no. uh, whether your dog is ready for an e collar or not. Exactly. Uh, that that is a great point. And and the last kind of gear related deal, um, it it can kind of maybe fall in the same thing as the e collar. What is Scott's personal opinion on prong collars and pinch collars? I don't like them. I don't like them. Um, and, and that, and a lot of people will be like, yeah, but you use a wonder lead. There's a huge difference between a wonder lead. That's a slip lead. Yep. Yeah. And, and a pinch collar and, or, um, what's the other one you had mentioned pinch or 
like a choke collar, prong prong collar, something along those lines. Your puppy is developing at least for the first year and a half of its life. And what I mean developing is developing physically and mentally. And a pinch collar or a prong collar, in, in my mind anyway, has a very high propensity to possibly cause some issues, um, both physically and mentally with a dog. Um, it's a very definitive correction when you give it and when you give it correctly. Um, and depending on, you know, what you're doing with that dog and what you're trying to, um, show that dog, um, it, it, it could, it could really be detrimental if your timing is off, we'll say. Um, and, and, you know, I've seen dogs, dogs come here sometimes and it's like, you just know, it's like, okay, how often do you use a pinch collar? Well, how do you know you use a pinch collar? Well, the dog's neck is literally bald underneath, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's like bald where that yeah. collar would normally sit. And, and you have to ask yourself, okay, come on. I mean, are you, are you really teaching the dog anything at this point? Or are you just choking the dog out or you're just putting pressure on either side yeah. of, you know, its neck or, or anywhere's on or around where some of the, you know, some pretty important stuff is, you know, the windpipe, the, all the arteries and veins that leave up and down the neck, you know, there, there's a lot of issues. And I actually saw a young dog. This was a while ago. This was probably about eight years ago. I saw a young dog, a young short hair that showed up. Uh, owner was having some real issues with obedience. And the minute he showed up, the dog was on a uh, prong collar. And um, I took the prong collar off and I'm just kind of looking at the dog through the assessment. And the dog had actually developed calluses and, and like raised hard you know, basically, um, musculature and stuff like that under the skin from where this guy was using the collar so much. Mm. And, and, you know, the dog's physiology basically said, okay, that, you know, just like anything else, you know, why is our elbows and our heels, the thickest and toughest skin in our body? Well, it's because we're on them all the time. Well, it's the same thing that happened around his neck. And I can't help to think that, you know, okay, what, what could happen with that later on? You know what I mean? What What's going to happen with that later on? Is it always going to be yeah. a lump there? Is there always going to be a callus there? You know, is that going to affect the dog's ability to breathe or circulate or anything like that? So me personally, I'm very much against a, a prong collar or a um, any type of a pinch collar along those lines. There's some products out there. I mean, yeah. a lot of people would argue that the Wonder Lead is a pinch collar. If you're using the Wonder Lead properly in the way that it was designed to be used, there should be absolutely no pressure on that dog's neck at any time unless you make a correction. And then the idea is that when you make that correction, the pressure immediately comes off. As soon as you correct and you release, the pressure is completely off the dog. That's not always the case with a pinch or a prong collar. and yeah. I'm trying to think of uh, if there's anything else out there that could be kind of correlated with that. I mean, the Wonder Lead, the biggest argument that I've heard is the Wonder Lead is no different than a pinch or a prong, and it's significantly different than, than both those other two systems. Yeah. 
Yeah, at the end of the day, it, the wonder lead is essentially it acts like a slip lead, right? Yeah. I mean that that that's really all it is, and it, it's one of those. It it kind of goes back to terminology. You know, people just associate it because it, it slips and it gets tighter on the dog when you make a correction. It's technically choking, and so they're going to associate that the same thing as the prong or the the pinch lead. Uh, but the pressure's different. I mean, at, at the end of the day, you're applying pressure with all of these collars. But what you just said is paramount that you have better control with a slip lead type deal like the Wonder Lead to where you can immediately take that pressure off and the type of pressure, it's not as severe. And when you're talking about puppies, you know, it's maybe it's it's not a great idea to start at 10 on the the heaviness of the pressure, right? right. Maybe it's it's better to start off on the lighter side and, you know, it maybe down the road you have one of those crazy hard charging dogs that you know maybe need a little bit tougher kick in the rear end with this stuff but uh as well, a puppy i wouldn't suggest yeah, using those no I, I wouldn't even it. use a wonder lead with a puppy until it gets that's the one tool that i would say that's the one tool that i would say okay the dog's size and body matters a little bit uh, i wouldn't even use a wonder lead with a yeah. puppy because if you think about what a puppy is going to do you're going to have to do all the initial um, introductions to just being walked on a leash anyway. So, you know, a puppy with a new yeah. collar on, what do they want to do? They want to fidget and play with the collar. Why is this around my neck? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And then you hook a leash to them and then you'll see puppies that are literally grabbing the leash. Like, okay, am I supposed to carry this or am I supposed to bite at it? Or why do you have control of me right now? I don't understand this. You know, it, you have to do your introduction with your leash first uh, to me. And with the slip leads, yeah. you know, the, the whole choking piece is if the dog's choking himself out or if the dog's choking or if the dog's continually pulling while you're on a slip lead, then you're already missing a bunch of stuff prior to that. And, and the dog is just, and you're not using the, the training tool properly, basically, you know, that, that slip lead, that, that wonder lead should absolutely be slack and you should be able to utilize it with just basically two fingers and, and just a quick little snap. And it does, it, it's not a choking thing. The wonder lead, if it's properly installed on the dog, it's, it, it is getting a little bit of the throat in the bottom, but where it's really affecting the dog is the two pressure points right up behind the ears on the back of the head. And, and that's, yep. that's where you're getting your correction from, not the choking type situation absolutely so yep no absolutely well we we kind of covered a, a lot of ground here uh like i said a, a lot of topics that maybe we didn't touch on or, or got asked on over the past four or five episodes um is there anything else you've listened to all the episodes is there anything else that you know share scott's wisdom impart your wisdom upon everybody else about to get their first puppy you know close it out with a bang what what would you suggest that everybody needs to know getting into the into the dog world with their first puppy or maybe it's somebody getting their second or third puppy whatever um i would say don't be scared I think a lot of people, I mean, we did a great job, I think. And Nick, you did a wonderful job by selecting the right guests and, and going through this series and stuff like that. But I mean, I think there's probably going to be some people that walk away from listening all to all these and being like, holy crap. 
uh, either I have really messed up because <laughs> they've got a 10 uh, week old puppy already. And they're like, Oh my God, what did I just do? I just made the worst decision in my entire life. Or they're, they're getting ready to, or they're on somebody's list or something like that. And they're like, Oh, now I got to go back and ask my breeder all these questions. I don't know how I'm going to do that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't be scared guys. We're, we're trying to help everybody in this situation. And, 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 and the, the long and the short of it is, is that, um, you know, just think about what you're doing. It's going to be a commitment no matter what. And, and that's all any responsible breeder on really wants them, wants their owners or potential owners on, to realize and understand is it's going to be a commitment owning this dog. Um, congratulations, by the way, because I know you're a new dad now. It, it's a commitment to be a parent, right? <laughs> Appreciate it. Yeah, it, it's going to be, it's yep. a commitment to be a new parent, you know, and you and Pam, you know, when you figured out, well, we're going to have a baby, I'm sure at first, you know, and you made those decisions and you went through the process and, and you know, nine months later, you're kind of like, okay, this will, and then all of a sudden you got Raylan at the house and it's like, oh, this commitment just got real. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're gonna have those moments. Everybody's gonna have those moments. We still have those moments, and I've been breeding and training dogs for 25 plus years. You're still going to. I'm I'm picking a puppy from my litter right now that we're gonna keep and, and include in our breeding program, and I still look at his litter every day, and I'm like, God, man, I, I really like these two, but am I am I making the right choice right now? Are these, are these the two new ones? Are these the two potentials for RDK and stuff like that? At, at one, just don't be scared about it. I mean. Well, and, and, and to not to interrupt you, but if you're not asking those questions, if you aren't, you know, it, that concerned with making the right choice, the right educated choice, you know, may, maybe this isn't the world for you because it, it stems from, your passion, right? right? You all want to make the right choice and the, and for you, for you and your, your family and your situation and your hunting partner, there's a reason why everybody is so afraid to mess up their dogs. And it comes from a point of passion yep. and they just don't, they want to do right by their dog. But to your point, you know, it, so many, so many people can do this. Yeah. Like you said, just don't be scared. Don't just don't be scared, don't be scared. Yeah. And, and do the best you can. And learn from your mistakes. That's the biggest thing is the best trainers I, I've had the fortune of talking to and meeting in person. It's not that they, you know, just started off knowing dogs better than anybody else. They were willing to accept the fact that they made mistakes. They were yep. willing to admit it and they learned from it because yep. we're all going to make mistakes. It's what you do with those mistakes that uh, it, it's going to set you apart in the long run. Yeah. And, and let's be realistic. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to call a spade a spade. It, anybody probably listening to this podcast right now, you've already got enough care and, and concern to do the right thing anyway. You know what I mean? If they're listening to the gun dog at yourself podcast and trying to figure out what puppy you've already got enough concern and, and enough, you know, care and passion to do the right thing by owning a dog. Don't let that, don't let everything that you've heard over the last couple of weeks and months and stuff like that be like, oh, I've got to wait another year to get my dog. No, get your dog. If you're ready now and everything, all the stars have aligned, get your dog when you want to get your dog, you know, and start the process. Mm -hmm. Good, 
Because just like you said, you're never going to start learning until you start learning. Exactly. Well, that's a that's a great way to wrap it up. I hope everybody enjoyed this series. We got a lot of good plans coming at you uh, down the road for, for more content. Uh, thanks for listening. And Scott, thanks for joining us as always. No, brother. It's always my pleasure. I'm still waiting for that official invite. <laughs> well, I got I, I gave you the endorsement at the start of this, so we'll that's one true. step at a time. We're baby stepping it. <laughs> I know that's true. All right, that's true. Well, all right, well, appreciate it. We'll check back next week. Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash gundog it yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again and year go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want if you're considering changing your dog's food soon then be sure to check out yukonuba pro performance their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance they also now have the new puppy formula to help your pups start strong and live active when looking at all the different food options remember yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.